Well, friends, we're back today in Paul's letter to the Romans. We'll be picking up in Romans chapter 4 and verse 9. I'm going to go ahead and invite you to open your Bibles to that particular chapter and verse. We're going to be considering Romans chapter 4 verses 9 to 12 today. I don't have a lot of comments by way of introduction other than to do as we've been doing, bring us up to speed, catch us up in terms of where we have been up to this point in Paul's letter to the Romans so that we are better prepared to engage with these several verses today. This is useful for you, obviously, if today's your first time coming and you've not been here for the entire Romans series. This is useful for you if you've been here for most of the sermons, but maybe not all of them. And if you're one of those individuals who has not missed a single Romans sermon, this is useful for you. It's useful for me. Because the better we understand and the better we catechize ourselves to grasp and know the arguments of the Apostle Paul, the better off we will be. Paul had announced, you remember, in chapter 1, that the righteousness of God is revealed in the Gospel. We considered how that does not mean that the fact that God is righteous is revealed in the Gospel, but rather, the Gospel reveals a righteousness that God gives to sinners that is entirely of faith. And so, that is the reason that Paul can say that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Paul then went on to demonstrate for multiple chapters that this way of salvation, salvation through faith in Christ apart from works, is the only hope mankind has. This is because all human beings are under sin and are therefore guilty before God, and hear this, all human beings are incapable of being justified in God's sight by their own obedience. That's Paul's point. He proved it convincingly. Paul then goes on to explain and extol the righteousness God has provided for sinners. And that righteousness is provided precisely through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And sinners don't do anything in order to obtain this righteousness. We don't work anything to obtain this righteousness. We trust, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are counted righteous on His account. In chapter 4, Paul illustrates these truths. He does this by appealing to the witness of the Old Testament. As we considered last week, Paul appeals first to the example of Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jewish people who was held in the highest regard. What did he gain according to the flesh, asked Paul. If Abraham was justified by what he did, he has something to boast about because he contributed something. But as it stands, he does not have anything to boast about before God. What does Scripture say? What did the Lord say about Abraham's justification? It was that he believed the promises of God's salvation through Christ and was counted righteous. If a person works, says the Apostle, the money that he receives is not a gift. It's his due. He has earned it. But that is not how God justifies sinners. This is not wages earned. This is gift given. God justifies the ungodly on account of Christ. And the ungodly who are justified do not work in any way for that justification. Receive it. They're passive in it. Paul then appealed to David, Israel's great king, Paul says that David too spoke of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from what he does. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Sins are forgiven and sins are covered where the righteousness of the Savior is counted to sinners. 
And then beginning in verse 9 of Romans chapter 4, and going through the end of the chapter, Paul engages the history of Abraham, the life of Abraham, at more length to further prove his argument. Justification by faith in Christ apart from works. So we're going to look today at verses 9 to 12. Next Sunday, should the Lord give us that, we'll look at verses 13 to 25. Again, all of this, a more in-depth survey of the life of Abraham as we consider him, the example of Abraham, and justification by faith in Christ. Let's look now to the Scripture. Listen now as I read, beginning in Romans 4 and verse 9. This is the Word of God. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Amen. We thank God for his word. A couple of overarching comments on Romans 4, 9 to 25, just for our understanding at a high level, at a 30,000 foot level. Here is Paul's argument. Abraham was not justified by circumcision, nor was he justified by works of the law. Rather, he was justified before circumcision and before the law was even given. His justification was by faith. That's the argument. And this was to demonstrate and to teach us how any person is justified in God's sight, whether Jew or Gentile. It is only through faith in Jesus, the promised Redeemer. Having said that, our plan for today, three-part message this morning. First, I want to look at the text of Romans 4, 9-12. to I'll say more about this in a second. The passage is straightforward. won't take us long. We'll be able to then reflect and apply on the text together. So part one, we're going to consider the text. Part two, I want to connect what Paul says here in Romans 4 to what he had written in the letter to the Galatians. Part three, we're going to have an additional extended reflection on our lives and our living. I'll try to be redundantly plain about where we are as we make our way through. Part one, let's look to the text. Again, at the outset, I want to make this plain. This passage is straightforward. It really is not complicated in terms of the point that Paul is making. Once we have a little bit of time making sure we understand it, we'll be able to spend time reflecting and applying, which is effectively parts two and three of the message today. Put your eyes on verse nine. Here's the question. Is this blessing... And, of course, Paul is referring to, is the blessing of justification by faith apart from works, is that blessing only for circumcised people? Is it only for the circumcised? Is it only for the Jews? Or is the blessing of justification by faith apart from works also for the uncircumcised, for the Gentiles? After all, Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. He's the father of the circumcised. Paul then says, second portion of verse 9, we say, and by that he means I and the other apostles, we say that on account of Christ, faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10, he asks, All right, how then was it counted to him? How then was righteousness counted to Abraham through faith? Was it before or was it after he had been circumcised? 
And he answers his own question. It was not after, but before. Verses 11 and 12. Paul says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, I don't want us to get lost in the weeds here. Paul is about to tell us the purpose of what he's writing. Always look for things like this in the text. You see it right here. He received the sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was this. Abraham being justified by faith before he was circumcised was to make him the father of all who believe in Jesus whether that person be a Gentile or a Jew. That's the purpose. I'll say that again. For our clarity of understanding, Abraham being justified by faith before he was circumcised was to make him the father of everyone who believes in Jesus, whether that person, that believer be a Gentile or a Jew. A few other things to say for our understanding that will help us as we read and study the Scriptures. There are two ways that a person can be a child of Abraham. Two. One way to be a child of Abraham is to be his physical offspring. To be biologically related to him. According to the flesh, right? To be a part of his progeny. To be Abraham's child in this sense has everything to do with circumcision. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. The other way to be a child of Abraham is to be his spiritual offspring. A child of promise. As Paul writes later on in his letter to the Romans, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Or as Paul wrote to the Galatians, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. To be Abraham's child in a spiritual sense has nothing to do with circumcision. And it doesn't have anything to do with the law either. We're going to talk about that next week. All those who follow Abraham in his faith are his children, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus had this conversation with a Jewish audience during his earthly ministry. Later on today, you don't need to turn there right now, but you could read John chapter 8, in particular verses 31 and following. In that account, Jesus tells his audience that if they abide in his word, they are truly his disciples and that they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. His Jewish audience, his listeners, they object and they appeal to Abraham. And Jesus says to them, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen from my father and you do what you've heard from yours. They answer him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. On the one hand, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, according to the flesh, right? I know your offspring of Abraham according to circumcision in that regard. But on the other hand, if you were Abraham's children, if you were his children spiritually, according to faith, you would believe my word. Abraham, as our text today says, is the father of all who believe. To put it more precisely, he is the father of all who trust in Christ as he did. John 8, 56. 
Abraham, says Jesus, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. And he was glad. All who like Abraham look to Christ, rejoice to see the day of the Messiah, are Abraham's spiritual children. As Paul writes elsewhere, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So that's all part one, just for our understanding of the text. Part two, what I want to do now is I want to connect what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 4 to things that he wrote to the Galatian Christians. Track with me here. It's good that we would understand Scripture with Scripture. We use other passages to elucidate, to illumine greater, more greatly, however the proper English way of saying that is, to help us better understand. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 30, you can put your eyes there, Paul had asserted that God justifies the circumcised and the uncircumcised by faith. And he is, as we've thought about, proving that assertion even further in our text today, Romans 4, 9-12. He answers the question, Paul does, of whether the blessedness of being justified by faith apart from works is confined to those who are circumcised. That's his question in Romans 4. It's significant. To answer this question was critical. It might not feel that way to us today in the 21st century in a context where we don't know that many Jewish people, ethnically speaking. We know a few. There are a few here this morning. But the majority of us are not Jewish. So we lose sight of how significant this is. For Paul to answer this question of whether the blessing of being justified by faith apart from works was confined to those who are circumcised was critical because the Jews not only thought that justification depended at least in part on their works, but also that the privileges of the people of God were inseparably connected with circumcision. That was the idea. That was the thinking. The privileges of the people of God are inseparably connected to circumcision. How can you be a person of God? How can you be a child of God without circumcision? Before Paul wrote Romans, he wrote Galatians. Galatians, just by the way, is the earliest of Paul's letters, the oldest, and it is also the earliest, oldest of the New Testament writings. That's very illustrative and significant if you think about its content. This is the first book of Scripture written post-Christ. And consider what Paul is clarifying there. Paul deals with circumcision in that letter. There were those in Galatia who were teaching that Hear this, alongside faith in Christ, circumcision was necessary. Alongside faith in Christ, circumcision was necessary for salvation. It was not that the false teachers in Galatia were pitting circumcision against faith. Rather, they were adding circumcision to faith in Christ. That distinction is important. It's not that circumcision justifies a person. That was not the Galatian heresy. That a person is justified by circumcision. That a person is justified purely by works of the law. Rather, what was taught is that a person can't be justified without being circumcised. You see, the Galatian heresy, the false teaching that had permeated the church in that city, was a Jesus-plus kind of false gospel. Now, seeing that this is what Paul was going after in Galatians, from my perspective, brothers and sisters, makes the letter of Galatians hit that much harder. What Paul is going after is not full-blown works righteousness. It's not full-blown justification via circumcision and works of the law. It is Jesus plus anything. As we like to say, he, he goes in the paint and throws some sharp elbows when it comes to the nature of being justified. How does this occur? What was being taught in the Galatian churches is this. Yes, Jesus. Of course, Jesus. Faith in Jesus. But you cannot be a true child of God without circumcision. 
And for our purposes today, in light of the truth of Romans 4, 9 to 12, thinking about what was being taught in the Galatian churches, I want to reflect on just a moment on the reality that the Galatian heresy, brothers and sisters, is alive and well in our day. The fact that the Galatian heresy is alive and well in our day is made very obvious by the yeah, but that always follows the heralding of Christ. Maybe not verbally, but even in our own minds and hearts, this occurs. When we say, having preached the law, right, that God requires a righteousness that is greater than we could ever fathom. He requires that we would love Him with our entire heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment. That we are required to love our neighbors as ourselves every moment. That we are, in short, required to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Having been clear on the righteous requirements of God's good and holy law and the fact that because of our sin and corruption, we could never meet the test, we say the following thing. We say, but here's the good news. There's a promised Redeemer. The God-man, who God had always planned to send into the world. He came and He lived a, a perfect life. Loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment. Loving his neighbor as himself every moment. At the level of the heart, the mind, the affections, the desires, all of it. And then because of his perfect life, he is able to represent sinful people. Just as Adam represented us all in the garden, this Savior represents us now. Not only did he live the life God requires that we haven't lived, but he also died under the law to sustain and endure its penalty so that in him it is as though our punishment has been met. Our punishment has really been poured out on another, on a representative, on a substitute. And so now we go free if we are united to him, this Savior, this representative. And so because of him, and because of what He has done, salvation, quite literally, beloved, is over. It has been done. We, for our part, don't work for it. We don't work to actualize it. We don't work to keep it. The victory has been won. People rightly observe that the word gospel, good news, originally, it's a military, geopolitical word, right? It's where your nation, your city-state, would go to war, and the victory that your nation, your people, for your livelihood and your survival, that victory that was won, that news was brought back home. The good news was given. What was it? By the nature of being news, it's reporting of something that has already occurred. The victory has been won. Rejoice. Take heart. That's what good news was as the word was used in a military and geopolitical sense. So too with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is news of victory accomplished. It's been done. There's nothing for you to do. There's nothing for me to do. The call, the question is, do you believe the news? Salvation is given. We receive it by faith. And faith, by definition, comes with an open hand. with merely a confession of need. We believe on Jesus' name and we are saved. We believe on Jesus' name and we are saved. Eternally safe 
without question, without jeopardy, without doubt, saved. And we say, really? Really? This is because it has everything to do with what Jesus has accomplished. This is because the question is not whether you can fail. The question is whether he can fail. The reason that we can say, believe on his name and you will be saved is because he has done everything. Everything that God in the law could ever require by way of obedience. He has endured everything. Everything that God in the law could ever demand by way of punishment. And he has conquered all of our enemies. This includes death. Satan, the adversary. Sin. So when it comes to salvation, there is nothing that will ever be asked of us that Jesus has not provided. There is nothing that will ever condemn us that Jesus has not satisfied. And there is nothing that will ever harm us that Jesus has not conquered. We were represented, all of us, by Adam, and in him we did fall. However, if Jesus is our representative, then we are forever blessed and saved. We have gained more in Christ than we lost in Adam. How does anyone become united to this Savior? How does this Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, become anyone's representative? The scriptures claim. By faith, by looking to Him, by trusting Him. Here's, here's where it gets uncomfortable too. In light of all that, when it comes to your salvation, when it comes to your standing before God, when it comes to your acceptance before Him, now and in the future, we rightly tell people, quit trying to do something for your salvation. Despair of your own righteousness. Give up trying to be good enough. Believe in Jesus and all is well. Believe in Him and all will be well. I wonder what's in your mind right now. What thoughts do you have? What's welling up in here? I'm not going to presume to know what you're thinking. But I can at least speak from my own personal experience of things that I, having heard that news, would think, or in some seasons of my life was even taught to think. Having heard that believe on His name and all is well. Quit trying to be good enough. Quit trying to save yourself. Believe in His name and all will be well forever for you. The yeah, but, the objections, they begin to well up inside. Part of this is because of our own frame. Part of this is because it's what we've been taught to think. Through the history of the church, here is the rub. I trust this will resonate with you. If we say what I just said about the Gospel, if we herald Christ that way, people will not be properly motivated to pursue faithfulness, to pursue obedience, and to pursue holiness. It's the age-old objection. Now, we're not to Romans 6, 1 and following yet, so I'm, we're going to talk about it then. Because we... We think that the answer to nominalism, Christianity in name only, is to teach people how to live like Christians. That's not the answer, according to Paul. We'll get there in a number of weeks should the Lord give them to us. But for our purposes today, the age-old objection through the history of the church, 
that occurred in the first century with the preaching of the Gospel. You can't tell people to simply believe in Jesus for eternal life. They're just going to go sin. You can't tell people to simply believe in Jesus for eternal life because you're going to produce a bunch of fakers. You can't tell people Jesus did everything necessary, everything necessary for salvation, or people will not then go and do good works. Here's the thing. We'll probably say these things a number of other times if we have years together, and we trust that every time we say them, they need to be heard. Here's the thing. These objections might make sense. They might hold water. They might have some traction if Christianity was a human endeavor. But as it stands, it's not. It is the work of God. These objections might make sense if Christianity was a natural thing, if it was a natural process. But as it stands, it's supernatural. These objections might make sense if regeneration, the new birth, was not real. These objections might make sense if being given new hearts by God himself was not a thing. These objections might make sense if God putting his own spirit in us wasn't the truth. These objections might make sense if being made alive together with Christ wasn't real. These objections might make sense if union with Christ was not our new reality. Deep down, if we're honest, these things get us too. They trip us up too. We struggle. At a quick glance, Christian social media, I don't really recommend that anybody ever look at it. I'll just be frank. I occasionally do. I look at Christian social media and most all the time, with the exception of a small subset, I, I leave discouraged. That's not to be pejorative and to demean our brothers and sisters. It's just we all would do better to be more thoughtful and to be more concerned with edifying one another than burning others down who disagree with us. That's all. But even a quick glance at Christian social media makes it really clear that many struggle to understand these matters. We do not know how to think about obedience apart from merit, earning something. And we do not know how to think about obedience apart from escaping punishment. We do not know how to not think about obedience as what will finally sign, seal, and deliver our salvation. The fact that obedience and freedom would collide in the same sentence breaks all of our human faculties. Think about that. Because in our lives, in a fallen world, we have to be taught to do good. We don't naturally do it, right? Any kind of law, any kind of obedience for us as we grow as human beings in this life, it feels and is often restricting. It's curbing our natural corruption. So whenever we think about obedience, we think about it in these terms. This is partly, too, because of our legal frame. We have the same problem trying to understand that salvation is a gift to us, that we are saved by God's grace on account of what Christ has earned, full stop. As has been said by many before me, there is something about us, beloved, that we cannot help but run to Moses. We trust Christ, and we cannot keep ourselves but running to Moses and the law for some peace, some portion of our acceptance, our standing. Jesus is great and all. He's done a very good job at getting this salvation thing going, but we need to bring Moses in. Call him in. We need Moses to get us across the finish line and really bring this sucker home. Charles Spurgeon spoke of the strange infatuation that we have with the law. He said, like the fascination which attracts the gnat to the candle, though it burns its wings, men by nature fly to the law for salvation. 
and cannot be kept from seeking life by it. The law can do nothing else but reveal sin and pronounce condemnation upon the sinner, and yet we cannot get men away from it. Now I want to be very clear. I want to be very clear about what Charles Spurgeon was speaking to. I want to be clear about what I'm aiming to speak to today because this is what Paul has been arguing for in this section of Romans. When it comes to how we live, we're going to talk about it here in a few minutes. When it comes to how we live, Paul will write about it. But what he is talking about in these early chapters is how is a person reconciled to God? The question here is not how are we to regulate and order our lives. The question here in these chapters of Romans is how are we to be saved? And when it comes to that question, there is one answer. There is one person. He is our only hope and confidence. And the only way that we are ever found in him is by faith apart from anything that we have ever done or ever could do. Clarity on this matter is the most important thing that we could ever be clear on in the church. I trust, having said all this, that in many minds and hearts in our midst right now, you're thinking rightly. Rightly. I want to affirm you. Bro, what about holiness? Personal holiness. What about sanctification? What about the transformation of our lives? What about godly change? Let's talk about it. I would love to talk about it. Let's consider it together. This is part three. This is kind of our extended closing reflection. In light of all of these things, we're going to talk about our lives, transformation of life, godly change, sanctification, growth. Now, I want to do this this way. There's a number of ways we could talk about it. I want to consider these matters by considering God, and in particular by considering what God is like and how He works. My aim here is to encourage all of us. Because I know, because I'm one of us, I know that we all have time when we feel overwhelmed when we're frustrated and we see it. We're grumbling in our hearts and we're aware of it. We're trapped between rage and tears, between anger and despair. We want to obey God's law. We're burdened that it is not going very well. We don't want to sin, but in spite of all of our prayers and sighs and tears, Temptation is near and constant and heavy. We all have times when we cry out in our hearts or even say audibly, like, I am a wretch. We all have times where we're grieved by our sin. We all have times where we're troubled or even frightened by the wickedness that we see in ourselves. We all have times where the battle feels pointedly hard and we're discouraged in the fight. So let's look to our God. What He's like. How He works. May this encourage our souls. And when I say may we be encouraged, hear me, may we be encouraged to press on. To continue in the fight. Three places I want to briefly consider. You guys remember the Exodus. You remember the situation there. God's people are in bondage in Egypt. And through Moses, God is going to deliver His people. He's going to rescue them. In order to do this, you remember that God sent a series of plagues upon the nation of Egypt. In the midst of doing this, God, through Moses, says a number of things to Pharaoh. One of the things that God says through Moses to Pharaoh is found in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. It says this, The Lord to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, that's not something that we necessarily see on the flannel board, right? When we're learning the ten plagues that God says to Pharaoh, I'm raising you up for this purpose, to, to, that my power might be shown through you, and so that my name 
might be proclaimed in all the earth. Put that in your mind. Do you remember a woman named Rahab? Joshua chapter 1 and 2. You remember her. She's a prostitute in Jericho. You remember Moses has died. Joshua is now the commander of the Lord's army. He's the leader of God's people. The Lord has been very clear. I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. Spies are sent in particular to scout out Jericho, this large, significant city. These spies arrive and they meet this woman, Rahab, a prostitute of the city. What happens? A number of things occur. She ends up saving these men's lives. She ends up hiding them so that they are not harmed by the powers that be. But what does she say? What does she say to these spies who had been sent by Joshua? She says, we have heard about what the Lord did in Egypt. We have heard about what the Lord did in Egypt. I know that the Lord has given you this land. The Lord, Yahweh, your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Says this prostitute, swear to me that you will deal kindly with me and my family as a result of what I'm doing for you today. And they did. What the Lord did in Egypt, this is what I want us to see. This is how purposeful he is and how good he is. What the Lord did in Egypt. Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose so that my power might be displayed and so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord did that, at least in part, with Rahab in mind. That's, pretty epic. What does she say? We heard what the Lord did. Many others say these same words on the pages of the Old Testament. We've heard what the Lord did in Egypt. This is how purposeful He is. How sovereign and intentional He is. And He is that way always, beloved. That includes in your life and mine. Be encouraged. Take heart. Next, it was read earlier, we'll read it again. Psalm 103, listen to these words. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. We know that that's because Christ has dealt with that. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's because Jesus took them on Himself, dealt with them, and He's never given them back. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That's His posture. What a God He is. While we're here, You saw in that text twice the language of those who fear Him. Let me put some flesh on that phrase for you. Only those who fear the Lord want to please Him and are grieved at the thought of offending Him. So when you read those who fear Him toward those who fear Him, if you want to please the Lord, and if you are grieved at the thought of offending Him, beloved, that's you. So great is His steadfast love toward you. So great is His compassion toward you. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Lastly, I want us to consider the words of Hebrews chapter 12. If you have your Scriptures, you can turn there. Ryan, just if, if you want to try to get anything on the screen, it's verses 3 and following from Hebrews 12, 3 to 14. Many will be familiar with this text. This text sometimes, sadly, is because of what's said in verse 14, I think is misapplied to scare people, when in reality this is a passage of great comfort and encouragement for those who are weary. Let's look at it. We're going to just kind of drive by and observe some things. The writer of the Hebrews says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Jesus and what he went through. 
In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Your Savior endured far worse than what you were going through. Now, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This is from Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one with whom he's displeased? No. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he casts out? No, every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. That has to be said, because discipline is hard, right? Sanctification, growth in life is difficult often. It hurts. It's not pleasant. We need to be told, endure we need to be told, this isn't bad. It might feel bad sometimes. It's good, actually. God is treating you not as those he's going to cast off, but as his children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Only an illegitimate son. Not a son who is loved of his father. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, he's going to do a, an example from the lesser to the greater, right? He's going to reason from the lesser to the greater. Besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of, fear, of spirits and live? Of course. For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. In other words, they could have gotten that wrong sometimes, but it was still good for us. But he disciplines us for our good all the time, then this phrase, why does he do it? So that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Absolutely right. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God be praised. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Bear up under discipline. Why? Here we go. What should you do? Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. By the way, that last piece, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What in verse 10 did we read the Lord himself is disciplining us for? so that we might share in his what? Holiness. This is a word of great comfort, that he disciplines those who are his children. He is working holiness in us because we're his and because the new heavens and the new earth will be our home. So pulling it together. If we were to live with the following in the front of our minds. Just listen. If these things were in the front of our minds all the time, God's sovereignty, His purposefulness, His faithfulness, His mercy, His grace, His patience, His steadfast love, His loving discipline in our lives to the end that we might share in His holiness, the fact that He is not ashamed to be called our God, the fact that he will not tire of us. The fact that he will not grow angry with us and cast us out. The fact that he will never put us to shame. And the fact, the promise, that he has prepared for us a city. If those things were ever in the front of our minds and we were to live that way, how might we arrange our lives? if those things were ever in the front of our minds, what might we do differently? One thing I know for certain, we would not sin more. Beloved, let's keep striving. Trust your Savior. Trust your God, who is the Father of lights, who is completely good, who loves you. Continue to strive after holiness and godliness. Strive for peace. In as much as it matters, in as much as you're able, strive for peace with everyone. 
Let's pursue unity. Let's pursue patience, humility. Let's intentionally work toward and for these things. What the Lord has said is good. Beloved, let's hold fast to that. And what the Lord has said is evil. Let's collectively hate that and run from that. It really isn't complicated. Let's love one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord, as family in that regard, in God. Let's love the saints, those of the household of God, remembering that they are God's treasured ones. Let's pray for one another. When a brother or sister has a need, let's seek as we're able to meet that need. Let's practice hospitality. Invite other people into our homes and into our lives. And when we fail, when we fail, because we will, when we see our wickedness, when we feel our sin and corruption. By the way, it's not a bad thing that you would feel your sin and corruption. That is a significant piece of sanctification. A significant piece of growing in godliness is to feel your sin and corruption. When we do, feel these things, and when we fail, may we run to Jesus. We sing often. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. May we cast ourselves upon Him, the righteous one, who advocates for us when we sin. Perhaps you came here this morning feeling like a miserable wretch. Maybe you came burdened by your sin discouraged by how things are going in your life. Maybe you came here this morning knowing that you were wrong in that thing that you did. You came here knowing that you were wrong in that thing that you said. Beloved, take refuge in Jesus Christ. Hide yourself in the rock of ages cleft for you. Let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to who? To Jesus. The founder and the perfecter, the author and the finisher of our faith. Look to Him. Rest in Him. Rest in the forgiveness and the righteousness He has secured for you. Come, in just a moment, to His table and receive from Him. And then, Go and love. Let's pray.